My name is uh, Vrad, and uh, we've been talking through the Minor Prophets, or uh, a lot of people just call them a, a collection of the, the Later Prophets, which is uh, probably more confusing uh, because of the lack of chronological order in these books. Uh, but these are s- uh, small, shorter books uh, by people who are prophets, and a prophet is someone clearest definition, who when they open their mouth and speak, they're speaking on behalf of God. They're, they're saying, this is what God says into this situation, into this time, into this place. Uh, a lot of times prophecy is looking back at all that God has said and done and saying, can we remember that? Can we do that? Uh, can we be the type of people that God called us to be? And then other times, prophecies actually, and this is what you might be more familiar with in terms of a, a term, is prophets that stand looking forward and saying, uh, God is going to do this in the future. This is, this is where everything is pointing and headed. And so far, we're almost really actually to the end of these minor prophets, these 12 books. Uh, today, it's book 8. Uh, Zephaniah. But so far, often what we've been able to focus on and see is a a repetition of a theme around idols, about people worshiping things that are not God. People uh, putting their hope, putting their joy, putting their life and security and comfort uh, in things that are not God. And, And that leads to all sorts of injustice and sickness and you know, famine and, and God's uh, judgment for that sin. It often leads to injustice, and we've been talking about that quite a bit. But today, in the book of Zephaniah, we'll actually talk about restoration. Uh, Zephaniah, kind of, if you get really into the Minor Prophets, you'll see Zephaniah almost completely copies uh, the other Minor Prophets. So if you've been reading along with us, and there's no better time to start than now, uh, well, probably a better time would have been like in the beginning, but <laughs> no one will know. Uh, but if you haven't started, you can start now. But if you have been reading with us through the beginning, uh, you would, as you read Zephaniah this week, you'll be like, man, this guy is just like copying and pasting from other parts of the book or other parts of the prophets that I've already you know, read. And that's true. He's like a summary prophet, except for the last 10 verses are all quite original, and it's about the restoration that God is going to bring. And before we jump into that, I want to ask all of us, uh, if you want to, to share what would restoration, or uh, maybe a better term, is of everything being right and being made good, what would that look like? What are some of the characteristics of the good life coming back? Uh, good times rolling, what would that be like? <laughs> yes, Allie. Just constant parties and celebrations. Constant parties and celebrations. Everybody. Everybody. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, whole relationships with one another. No more brokenness. Yeah. No more pain, no more sickness. Yeah, no more pain or sickness. Yeah. A conversation of a really good copy that doesn't have to have Yeah, a really long conversation with no end, but it's a good one. Yeah. 
I think the inverse of what would times be like if they were really bad might be a really long conversation with someone who's a bore and you can't get out of it. Um, yeah? Uh, families would be whole, so we wouldn't have orphans or widows. Yeah. Just brokenness and like people searching for where they belong because they would know. Yeah. No more orphans, no more widows. Everyone would have a place, a family where everyone belongs to that one family. Yeah. Any other ideas about what the good life would be like? Yes. Yeah, yeah. parents would know how to actually love their children and, and love their children as God loves us. That's really good. I had to ask for forgiveness in the minivan in the parking lot here because I'm so short with my children so often. Yeah, and so that would that's good news to me. I guess a return to sanity in our public conversations, public discourse. Yeah. Feels like there's like a huge political divide what we see on the news and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it's as if people are living in two different realities, speaking two different languages for sure. Mm-hmm. I was talking to Daniel yesterday, like maybe I'm just old-fashioned, but like, I don't know, like returning back to a time when like dudes were dudes and girls were girls and like the words meant what they've always meant and you just kind of like, how can I have the happiest family and work my job well and like feed my kids and die mm-hmm. old? And that was like a good life. <laughs> Call me old-fashioned. Yeah. It feels, like, it feels like that is something out of a movie now. And I, yeah. It's a strange new world, and I don't understand it. Totally. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there's a Stranger Things joke to be made there as well. But yeah, being, going to uh, a world in which are, there aren't any like, political parties, and everyone lives under like, reality and truth, right? That there's not a, that, that truth and reality is not up for grabs and, and people can live in parallel universes but we'd live in one universe. Yeah. And that we would know like what it is we're trying to accomplish and, and be in our families and, and have those things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. No traffic. That sounds good too. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's those are all really good things. Everything from, you know, the eradication of sickness and injustice and inequality to, you know, right relationships with other people. And I think that that's all part of the restoration package. But this is what I think is amazing about Zephaniah is he uh, takes what, what God intends to restore and takes it so much deeper uh, than we imagine. Even like the wildest dreams of like, well, just peace on earth, which is basically what some of you guys are saying. Uh, Zephaniah is going to say, no, no, God's restoration is more than that. It's even more than just everybody getting along. It's more than everybody agreeing. It's, uh, it's even more than creation and sickness and all that stuff being made right. Uh, and so, yeah, let's, let's jump into it because I think often our view is too small. Even 
the, the craziest answers that we just gave are still too small, which I think is uh, quite the, the affront there, right? That like the Bible and, and, and the story of Christianity is saying even your wildest dreams, like no more sickness, uh, is still not as big as what God intends to do with people. Pretty remarkable. And so let's read uh, Zephaniah chapter 3, and we'll, we'll start with verse 9. So Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9. Uh, and this is a section in which he is talking about the future. Uh, he's talking about something that is going to happen. And this is what's really crazy as we read this passage, is all the stuff that he's talking about, this outlandish redemption, restoration, has already happened and begun in Jesus. So we don't stand here wondering, oh, that would be really cool if that happens. Like the people that read Zephaniah originally, the people that heard him say this originally, we stand as people knowing, wow, this has already begun and it's already true. That, that, that the most outlandish, bizarre picture of restoration is not uh, something that we look forward to. It's something that's already happened and is happening now. It's already secure and, and certain. So let's read it. He says this, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord, and serve him with one accord. Beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, they shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. And for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their midst a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. And then he says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice. And exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. And on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. The, the first thing that is deeper and more profound than our picture 
of restoration is a removal of shame, of the restoration of the human life and the human heart. You see it in the the very first uh, lines. In, In verse 11, he says, On that day you will not be put to shame because of the deeds with which you have rebelled against me. Or later on in verse 19, he says, I will change their shame into praise. And he's talking and he's speaking to a restoration of the human heart and the human life. He even goes on to say that in those days, uh, when this happens, when restoration comes, not only will you not have shame, but you also won't lie and steal and deceive others. Uh, Shame, uh, you should maybe think back to the, the most beautiful and haunting picture of shame, which is Adam and Eve in the garden. When they first decide and they say, hey, we would rather choose what's good and right for ourselves. That maybe God is withholding. And they take and they grasp the, the, the choice to be God themselves. And they, they take of the fruit and they eat it. What happens next? They feel naked and ashamed. They go and they hide. This is what shame is. Shame is the, is the consequence of sin that's relational and that's internal. It's to say uh, and to experience the reality that you have to hide. That, that sin has been done to you and that you've done sin. Uh, often this is one of the ways that people try to, to seek uh, you know, forgiveness, like in public statements or whatever, or whatnot. And they come and they say, you know, I'm just really ashamed and embarrassed about this. Uh, so please, you know, let me off the hook because I'm embarrassed about it. The biblical view of shame is actually uh, kind of harsher. It means that a, a, a person cannot uh, live and be true. Cannot, can no longer be an honest human in which they were created to be. Uh, there's a great uh, philosopher, he's a professor at Calvin College. He wrote a book uh, called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, and he talks about sin. The whole book is about sin. Uh, so if you're really into sin, like you should read that book. Uh, but he talks about how one of the big effects of sin is it destroys and it disintegrates the human heart. So what Adam and Eve do in their nakedness and shame is they go and they hide. They hide from one another. They hide from God. When God comes and seeks them out, they can't even respond except for out of fear and trembling and blaming of one another. Even twisting what had happened to try to make themselves somehow better. And so if you're wondering, I don't know if I've ever felt shame before. It's probably why you've always lied. The reason why you've always lied is likely because you do not want what's true about how you've acted and felt to be known outside of yourself. Uh, If you've ever tried to manipulate or twist the, the way you look or the way that you've done your labor or the, the attitudes within you, if you've ever tried to manipulate or deceive anyone with that, that's, that's shame. Shame is the, the consequence of sin that breaks all relationships. Uh, because we cannot ever imagine being brought as who we are to God or who we are and what we've done and what's been done to us to one another. 
It's, it's why we share our stories uh, in a way that makes it look like everything's all good now. As if that sin that we struggled with was like 500 years ago. Not like this morning. Uh, this is what Zephaniah is saying. When the restoration comes, and it has already come in Jesus, there will be a removal of shame. And a people without shame, but instead united to God and united to others, don't have to lie or deceive anyone else anymore. It's, it's how in, uh, in the full restoration of God, we will all boast in how much God has saved us and how massive the cross must have been to carry all of my sins and all of your sins. And how uh, profound the, the resurrection of Jesus is that, that in that day, whenever we see everything as it should be, we would all rejoice at how much healing God has done to our own hearts. And we would say, yes, this is all the stuff that I experienced in sin, but look at how uh, wonderful and marvelous God is for redeeming that sin. This is the first part of it. He removes the power of sin in our lives. This power that sin has to keep us broken, keep us hiding, keep us in the shadows. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a really great book for adults, but then they made it look like children so the adults would read it. It's called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. At least that's my take on his motivation to make parents sit down with their kids and say, oh, I guess I should read them this book because it's kind of God-themed. Uh, but really, it's like trying to like convince us as parents. Maybe children, too. But in The Voyage of the John Treader, there's this really annoying punk kid, Eustace. Does anyone know Eustace? Is anyone Eustace in real life? Um, Eustace was this annoying uh, only child, had everything he wanted, uh, brat of a, of a person. Uh, super cynical, super, uh, you know, cynical of any hope or anything like that. He just sort of wanted gold and possessions. And uh, really, uh, people later think that C.S. Lewis was just writing himself in Eustace. Like, Eustace is his character. Uh, but Eustace was this punk kid. Uh, eventually, he, he goes out of bounds of what people are supposed to do, and he gets transformed into a dragon. Does anyone, you guys know this story? There's a movie now, so... Anyone make that movie here? Sweet. Way to go, Jared. Uh, did you make the dragon? Did you make Eustace? Wow. It's a whole new experience for me. Uh, so in that, so Eustace is transformed into a dragon because of his sin and his greed and his heart. And he has to fly around. He cannot belong uh, on the ship. He, he, if he gets on the ship, he destroys it. He cannot uh, participate in what's actually happening. And eventually, feeling terrible about himself, he flies and he lays down somewhere. And then Aslan, the lion, comes to him to make him well. And this is what happens. Aslan says, you will have to let me undress you. And so desperate was Eustace, even his fear of Aslan's claws was not enough to stop him from laying down flat on his back. So laying anxiously on the ground, here's what Eustace felt. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. 
And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I had thought I'd, I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, laying in the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything only for a moment. And after it had become perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming in splashes, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I would turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out, and he dressed me in new clothes. This is the reality of God's restoration. Uh, He's not trying to restore us and make us follow new rules, like getting us a new program uh, for our mainframe computer, or or trying to limit us uh, from saying bad things or for for doing bad things. It's not a a beep button that he's now putting on us. What he does... And the death and the resurrection of Jesus is he removes our shame and he cuts deep and he makes us naked. And then he clothes us brand new again. And this, by the way, is remarkable good news. It's terrifying, just as Eustace describes here, that God would come and peel us away. But this is what he's doing. God makes us new. Without sin, no longer sinning, but also without the consequences of sin. The power of sin over our lives is being removed. The next thing he talks about is a restoration from punishment and oppression, where Jesus suddenly is a hero, a hero that we know. In verse 15, he says, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. He says, The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Here he's he's dreaming of a moment in which God will be king. A moment in which God will, will not be on high in a throne, but will be on earth with us as king. He says, there'll be a king for Israel and it will be the Lord and he'll be with us. And what's he doing? The first thing he says is that he will take away the judgments against us. That he will clear us of the the penalty of sin that's due us. Uh, While the whole of scripture is also pointing to this idea of shame and the brokenness of relationship being restored, it's also pointing to this reality that because of sin, we're all going to die. And we're already zombies, dead men walking. There's nothing we can do to even experience a true life. And here he's saying, when that restoration comes, when the good times begin to roll, it's going to look like a vanquishment of all judgment. 
that there will no longer be anything standing between you and God. There'll be no more penalty of sin. You'll be cleared. You'll be off the hook. You'll be set free. And he also connects this to the defeating of evil. And he says, He will clear away all your enemies, and you shall never fear evil again. That that good restoration is, like we have talked about a few times already during this series, an eradication of evil, evil being dealt with. That that not only will uh, we be made whole, not only will we be able to live forever, but the oppressors hanging over us will be dealt with. You can uh, imagine uh, a jailbreak of, of all of us being prisoned for life, uh, shackled up forever. And yet some hero comes, and, I, and this is, I know, how most of us imagine life, is longing for some hero to come. It's why Jared makes so many hero movies. Anybody else make hero movies? Sweet Allie makes hero movies too. It's, we, we consume them and we devour them because we would hope that somewhere, at some point in time, a hero will arrive. It's why uh, The West Wing is so popular as a TV show, and I, and I know it's still massively popular, even though it's been off the air for like 15 years, because we look at the president in The West Wing, Jed Bartlett, and we say, that's who we need. We need that man who like, like can do anything, who can you know, solve the Middle East crisis and fix social security, and he can do anything he wants. We want that hero. We want Superman, we want Batman, we want Wonder Woman, we want a president like that, and we long for a hero who can come in while we're in shackles in the dungeon and set us free. And what Zephaniah is saying is that one day there's going to be a mighty warrior, in verse 17, who will save, who will come into the midst and will save us. And that is Jesus. He, he breaks through the castle. He goes into the dungeon. He comes to us. He breaks open the shackles. He brings us all the way out and he says, I'm with you now. You get to live a full, abundant life now. That's restoration. I think often we live in a, an alternate reality from that one. But that is the true story. That, that God has defeated that sort of punishment, that he's defeated our oppressors, that he's defeated evil itself. Uh, it's like in the military, I've heard. I'm not in the military. and never have been. But you go to boot camp, and there you have a drill sergeant. I've watched Gomer Pyle a bunch. It was like one of the shows I was allowed to watch. Um, but you have a drill sergeant who tells you, if he tells you to do anything, you have to do it. If you have to, you know, wash the dishes five times, you wash the dishes five times. If he comes up to you at any point in your life and he says, drop and give me a hundred push-ups, you have to drop and give a hundred push-ups. If he says, you have to run up that hill and back, you have to do whatever it is that that drill sergeant tells you to do. And you do that week in and week out and, and you have to obey. You're compelled and there's, there's nothing to do except obey or quit. But then you graduate boot camp. And someone comes to you and gives you a piece of paper, and on it it says, here's your new commanding officer, here's your new position, here's where you're headed. 
But what often happens is then you leave. That person leaves to go follow their new commander. But what happens if, if on their way, way out, the drill sergeant comes to them again and says, Hey, drop and give me 100 push-ups right now. The, the person that just graduated boot camp says, I do not do that anymore because you are no longer my commanding officer. You have no authority over me anymore. I have a new commander. Often, though, we are the people that drop and do 100 push-ups for that old, angry drill sergeant all the time, even though we've been handed a whole new course, a whole new master, and that master is the king of the world, the Lord of heaven and earth, and he's defeated sin and death. And that drill sergeant is the enemy of God. It's evil. And we say, okay, I'll keep doing it. I'll keep submitting to this master who has no authority over me. When the good times come, when restoration is here and complete, and it's already begun in Jesus, we have no new master other than Jesus himself. And the results of all of that is praise and singing. He says, sing out loud, rejoice in your heart. He says, don't let your hands grow weak or limp or sore. Meaning that with all of this happening, this eradication of fear and shame and a sinful life, we just worship God for who He is. And He says, you will be moved to shout praises in that moment. You'll be like people on a hill throwing a massive party because you have nothing to fear. And you've been given everything. Often we think courage and bravery comes from uh, you know, that lone soldier who you know, doesn't have anything left to lose, right? But we've been given everything and it cannot be taken away. That's what he's saying about restoration. Everything will be Ours, everything that makes a person alive and whole, God Himself will be ours, and nothing can ever take that away. But lastly, He talks about this restoration that we have with God. He says in verse 17 The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. We're about to celebrate Christmas and Advent, uh, my favorite holidays, outside of the 4th of July. Um, But these are my favorite things to observe because it's the beginning of the good news of God, God being with us. That when Jesus is born, he's born Emmanuel. The angels actually come and sing, you know, does anyone know the songs and stuff? Or Yeah. Joy to you, peace on earth, because unto you the Savior's been born, right? That God has been given to us. That, that when Jesus is born, He's the Savior of the world, because God has broken into human history and is alive and walking in our shoes, but for us. That, that, that the crown jewel, if the, the ark of the Bible is is pushing through uh, shame and sin and evil, the payoff is not just those things aren't around anymore. 
The payoff is not just, oh, we don't have sin or, or sickness or death anymore. The payoff of all payoffs is God with you. God in your life walking with you. That alone is really wonderful, right? And then he says, he will rejoice over you with gladness. Not only will God be with you, not only is God with you, but what he's doing is he's delighting in you. He looks to each of you and says, I am fond of you. I rejoice over you with gladness. God's not compelled to save us and the world because it's something he feels like he should do. Like we're a fire he needs to put out on his eternal agenda. It's because of great delight and joy that Jesus endures the cross, but that God comes himself. He's not trying to to save us and restore us and leave us on some planet somewhere where, where we won't get in trouble anymore. The whole pursuit is God saying, I want to give my whole life to you. I want to be with you, and I delight in you. It's like a a grandfather on Thanksgiving Day, whenever you have that meal. Uh, I had a few really great grandfathers. Maybe you didn't, but sure maybe you imagine this sort of Rockefeller moment. But a grandfather invites all of his children, all of his grandchildren, all of his great-grandchildren to his house. And he makes a big meal. Uh, they, they put all of the things that are the traditional foods that this family has all on the table. And then the grandfather sits at the head. He sits at the head because that's saying, this whole family is defined by me and my character and my life. You all have my DNA in you. That's what makes you belong here. And then the, the grandfather stands up to give a toast and he looks at each one and he says, I delight in you all. Full stop. The grandfather doesn't stand up and say, well, if only you had sold a few more cars in your life or you know, if only you visited more often. This grandfather, the father, God the father, looks to all of us and says, I delight and I enjoy each of you. And it's my good pleasure that I share this meal with you. It's in fact what Jesus says when he institutes the Lord's Supper, right? He says, I've long awaited to have this meal with you. God delights in us. The restoration, good times coming, is God with us and also God delighting in us. But it's even more. I feel like an infomercial at this point. He says... After he rejoices over you with gladness, he will quiet you by his love. A rested, contented heart. When the Father says, I love you, you won't be seeking anymore. When he says, I delight in you, you won't be trying to prove yourself anymore. When he says, it was my joy to bring you here. You won't be looking for anything else to fulfill you or bring you satisfaction. His love will be enough to satisfy your soul. And while your whole life up until knowing Jesus might be spent uh, trying to fill a bottomless pit 
with work and possessions and comforts and, uh, you know, making people find you approving and wonderful and beautiful. While your whole life might be filling this pit where you never even see the bottom of it. God in an instant says you are satisfied and it's overflowing. The, the, the bottomless pit of your soul, God gets to the depths of it and then it overflows. You will be that sort of satisfied. Being close to Him, in His presence, in His love, you will know joy to its fullest and you will be at rest. His love will quiet your heart. But then he says, I will rejoice over you with loud singing. That that whenever all of this happens, he will rejoice over you with singing. That God will be the one singing lullabies and chants and bar songs about how happy he is that you're with him. It's like uh, parents who seek to adopt a child in a distant land. And they decide to, uh, to do that. Before even knowing the name of the child or the place or anything like that, they say, well, I guess we've got to raise 60 grand or whatever it is. And so they begin to raise money, save money, they sell their stuff, they, they do all sorts of uh, you know, garage sales, yard sales, they probably take up new jobs, they do everything that they can to have enough money, then they invite people to come and examine their lives and make sure that they're good enough to be parents, and they fill out mountains of paperwork, and they, they fill out visa applications, and then they book a plane ticket, and they fly all the way over to the world, and being, they've been given a name and a picture, and then they show up, and And then the people in the orphanage bring them the child that they had decided to seek five, seven years ago. And they've been handed this child that's now their son or their daughter. And that family, that husband and that father, or husband and wife, now mom and dad, just like coo and caw and sing songs and celebrate and take photos and rejoice for the rest of their lives that that daughter, that son, has been given to them. This is the sort of singing that God is doing over your whole life. And this is what God has been doing and headed towards doing all along. We could get wrapped up in trying to, you know, make our idols this thing that we can shoot down and, and, you know, kill, which I think is worth doing. We should kill sin and we should kill our false worship. But this is like the true deal. All the other deals are just imitations that will not last. This is the good thing. And of course, it includes parties and right relationships with other people, and and husbands and wives and daughters and sons, knowing who they were always meant to be. It definitely includes right government. It includes uh, peaceful conversations with one another. It includes all the things that you guys shared, but it's just more because it's God with us. And if that doesn't sound satisfying... Like this picture of like, I don't know, I just, I mean, God with me, I'd rather have these other things. 
I'd rather have the Democratic Party winning, you know, in a landslide. I'd rather have the Republican Party winning in a landslide. I'd rather see nuclear proliferation happen everywhere, or whatever it might be. You just do not know God. Because He is worth it all. And, and there was, I think, for people, like, I just don't know if it's going to be that great. And then Jesus comes into the story. And we don't live as people who had to listen and hear to the prophets. We live as people who have seen and know and and can read the life of our Savior, of God, with us. This is restoration. This is the good times. And so if you're someone who is leaving everything else behind, repentance, saying all that other stuff is not going to do it, And instead, I'm going to trust in Jesus to be the one who brings this sort of restoration. Then this is already happening in your life. The the shame is being removed and it's going to be painful. Every time you uh, feel the need to be honest about yourself with someone, you're not sure if they're going to treat it well. Every time you uh, have to confess sin to God, every time that you're suffering and struggling, God is removing shame. But it's happening. God is with you now. God seals your life in the Holy Spirit that that you no longer ever again live outside of His presence. That's now. The, The ultimate goal of seeing all evil eradicated, God is doing that work now. And it's gonna happen completely. And this, by the way, uh, might ought to, I've been told not to say should, this might ought to uh, raise our expectations for what we might experience in our missional communities, in our families of missionary servants. Because we get to be that mouthpiece to one another. We might expect now that, oh, I get to say to each person in my community, you are the delighted one of God. That He sings joy over you. That He's done everything to remove shame so you can be honest. We can be in relationship. We can seek reconciliation even when we both screw up. That we want to be a family defined by God the Father sitting at the head of the table and all of His blessings. That's what a missional community is. It's not a list of strategies or, or uh, things that we have to get right. It's a family of people that's always under God the Father. And this also changes how we live on mission. No longer in fear. Fear of others. Fear of giving your life away. Fear of losing your time and your money. Because you've been given everything and nothing can be taken away from you. Death today, if, if we all go live on mission in such a way that we all die, nothing's been taken away from us except this momentary life. But I also want us to imagine our city and the people in our lives. What if they knew this restoration? What if our city experienced this restoration? 
I think it's telling that Zephaniah doesn't talk about, you know, government made right, um, trees being planted. He talks about the human heart restored and then a relationship with God restored. And that, for Zephaniah, changes everything. And I think this ought to be at least some part of our motivation for even living a life on mission because he says, at that time, I'll deal with your oppressors, but I will save the lame, gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and the renown in all the earth. At that time, I will gather you together among all the peoples of the earth. The motivation for mission is that this is the story. This is the true story of what's happening. It's even the true story of what's happening in our church and in your missional community is God is restoring all things and he's calling in the lame and the outcast and those that are living their entire lives under shame. He's gathering them together. He's making us whole. He's turning our shame into praise. This is what is going on around here. Like a lot of times, I know, like, we want to be like a good church, right? That has like good coffee, good cups. We want to have like good music, good sound, good organization, all of those things. What God is really doing around here, though, is restoring us. He's making us whole in Him. He's proving Himself over and over again in every community encounter, every text message with us. What God is trying to do is say, I delight in you. You are loved. This is your identity. Walk with me. Remember I'm in your midst. That's what God's doing. We can't even screw it up. He's doing it so well. We might screw it up by like uh, settling for a lesser picture of restoration and always missing God's that he's already doing around us. There's a, just one last story, if I'm allowed. Most people seem to be allowing me. Uh, it's the story of the call of the wild. Has anyone read that book? It's one of the best books ever. Have you guys read it in school yet? Well, now you don't have to, because I'm going to tell the whole story right now. Uh, it's the story of a dog named Buck. Buck. Uh, Buck is a massive, wonderful dog, actually in the vineyards of California, but he gets stolen by some people that want to uh, just use this massive, strong dog to pull sleds through the snow. He gets stolen, he gets sold into slavery. He goes from being like this palace dog, essentially, that just gets to run around and hunt things all the time, to a slave in Alaska and in Canada, running around through mountains. And what he finds is that it's a very vicious place, that, that the masters that he has keep whipping and beating him all along, that the whole system is actually designed around the dogs biting and chewing one another. One day, Buck gets so fed up with it, he takes down and he kills the chief dog in his sled. And then he becomes the alpha dog. And he is in charge of the whole troop. And he doesn't have to fear anything else except for the master, but he's learned that if he's good enough and if he's strong enough, the master will go easy on him just a little bit. He goes through several rounds until at one point uh, he's about to, to die and he gets rescued by this other 
uh, dog sled runner, Thornton. And Thornton comes and rescues him. He actually, uh, he describes Jack London, this man, this older, rough frontiersman who just like beat up these other guys, grabbing this big, gnarly dog with matted hair and scrapes and scratches, and he grabs the dog by the head with his rough hands, and he kisses him on top of the head. And that everything that he says to him from then on, Buck knows love. And he says, not just affection, but love. He says, if Buck says, Buck's the narrator, uh, he says, you know, he's known... Uh, he's known what it's, what, what it's like to have a strong master. He's known what it's like to have a rich master. But this master is different because he rescued me. And that's when Doug, uh, Buck becomes alive. Who he was intended to be. And then he says, and this is what's really good for us to know. He's like, I don't even want to go back to the vineyards of California anymore. Because this that I have right now is good. That is our story that we're living in. It's just awesome. Isn't that like really wonderful? That's just a picture. Yeah. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for all that you have done to bring us to your table all that you've done to make us whole, to deal with sin, but also just to restore us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would allow our hearts to speak today, Father, to you. That we'd be able to say, Abba, Father. That we'd say, Daddy, and that we would know you. It's only through your Spirit that we get to Uh, taste and see that reality. So I pray that you would remind us of all of these truths. That you would make our hopes and dreams for our missional communities and for this church uh, so much more than we'd even imagined. That our hopes for this city would be that, uh, that deep as Zephaniah describes. Where everyone here has had their shame and sin and evil dealt with and gets to sit with you who delights in them. I pray for my neighbors. I pray for the kids at my daughter's school and their parents and all the people that we interact with at work that they would know the heights and the depths that you've gone to show them their love and that they would receive and be made alive because of you. We hope in these things and we hope in your name, Jesus. Amen.